0: Early on, we learn to evaluate the cost of things. You can picture that little child, pudgy-faced, pudgy little fingers, that waddle that you only have when you're wearing a diaper that needed to be changed about an hour ago. And there they are, looking back at their mom and looking back over to that outlet looking back at their mom looking back over to that outlet mommy's going don't touch it don't touch it and you see calculations happening in that little mind what will the joy be of touching that outlet what will the consequences be is there enough padding in this diaper for the pop i will receive if i touch that outlet It doesn't stop there. It grows, does it not? You got your first job. You're big time now. You're getting a paycheck. And you decide, I'll go with my friends to that fancy coffee shop down the road. And you show up, and all of a sudden, those prices seem astronomical. And you ask yourself, wait a second am I willing to work three hours for one frou-frou cup of coffee? And so it continues through our lives. This is part of what we call adulting, is it not? Grown-ups, how often are you doing an evaluation of cost and worth? It's consistent. We do it all the time. We're evaluating the cost of something versus the benefits that we receive. We do it over and over and over again, and as we look at our passage this morning, and something that Luke has been doing as a theme throughout Acts, and it will continue all the way through, is he is not hiding from us the immense cost of gospel advancement. There is, as it were, a plot line that is a little bit hidden in our text, A plot line that starts back in chapter 13 in this missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas have been called to by the Holy Spirit, commissioned by the church, sent out by the Holy Spirit, and it is this building of opposition. Now we already saw this in Jerusalem as the church grew there, but now we're seeing it as Paul and Barnabas are sent out. It started on the island of Cyprus with this man named Bar-Jesus who was a false prophet and a magician, and he sought to oppose Paul and Barnabas from the Gospel getting to Sergius Paulus, the proconsul. It turned out to be minimal. There was a miracle of judgment and Bar-Jesus went away blinded for a time. They go to Perga and then from Perga they go to Pisidian Antioch. And in Pisidian Antioch, which is where we were last time we were in Acts, we were given an example by, the, by Luke of the type of preaching that Paul and Barnabas did when they entered the synagogues. They stayed there for quite some time. Opposition arose, and then in Iconium, we're told at the end of chapter 13 that they leave Iconium because they are driven out of the district. So the persecution grows. Now remember, with the apostle Paul in particular, there has been this long-standing cat and mouse game. Right? He is converted and called, and he is told in Acts chapter 9 that he will see how much he must suffer for the sake of Christ. Acts chapter 9 and verse 16. And immediately, right, there in Damascus, he ends up having to flee because there's a plot to take his life. Then again in Jerusalem. He ends up fleeing because there's a plot to take his life. There are a few moments of reprieve when he goes to Tarsus. And then when Barnabas goes and gets him and brings him to Antioch in Syria, there are some moments of reprieve where Luke does not record persecution. But immediately as they strike out on this missionary journey, the persecution grows. And there is this question as we're reading, are they going to continue to escape like this? So in Iconium, they're driven out of the district. And as we read this morning, we find that then they get from, excuse me, from Pisidian Antioch, then they get to Iconium. In Iconium, it's the same thing, except this time, they don't just want to drive them from the district, they want to kill them. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're supporting some missionaries and you find out that there's a plot by the population and by the rulers in that area to kill those missionaries what would your advice be to them return home right get out of there well to some extent they do that but what do they do they move on they go on to Lystra and part of our text is dominated by this scene in Lystra which is a wonderful scene which could be a whole sermon by itself But if you'll jump over that scene that starts in verse 8 and goes all the way down to verse 18, if you would read from verse 7 straight down to verse 19, it helps you to catch the plot line of the narrative here. And what's happening is that this, this persecution is, is growing. And now in verse 19, the hunter becomes the hunted. Right? Because that's who Paul was. He was the hunter. Remember, before his conversion, this is exactly what he did. He went around hunting down those who were followers of the way and those who would be preachers of the way, and he assured that they were thrown in prison. And the first glimpse we get of him, he is watching the coats of those who are stoning a man for preaching the gospel and now the hunter is the hunted and there is that ominous music building in the background of this, this movie, right? This is, it's not a high speed chase. I don't think they had, you know, Maseratis or anything. Maybe they're on donkeys. I don't, but they're, they're chasing him down. A posse has been formed and Jews from Pisidian Antioch and Iconium are not content just to run Paul out of their towns and their districts. Now they are hunting him down. And lo and behold, in one verse, we're told that they persuade a crowd and that Paul is stoned. Now, we have to stop and think about what that would be like. The violence of that moment. Rocks are picked up and launched at a person. Hit repeatedly until his body is so broken externally and internally that they believe he is dead. And that's not enough. They take his body and drag it out of the city like it was a piece of garbage and leave it to be picked apart by the animals and rot in the sun. What we are intended to see, I think Luke wants us to see, is that there is indeed an extremely high cost for the gospel advancement. He wants us to accept the fact that there is a high cost for gospel advancement. He's not hiding it from us. He's laying it right out in front of us. Now, one of the things that we could do here is we could think, oh, you know, this isn't that big a deal. We could think of guys like Paul or Barnabas or these servants of the Lord. You know, they're like just avatars in a video game. Right? God will just make another one. And he'll make sure that it's got better weapons and is, is better equipped than the last version. You know, these these guys that are moving around, they're like pawns on a chessboard for the older generation who doesn't know what an avatar in a video game is. They're like pawns on a chessboard. You know, sometimes you just have to sacrifice a few for the end goal and it's no big deal. They just sit on the side of the chessboard until you decide to play again. We have to utterly reject that idea because God cares about every single one of His image bearers. He cares about every single one of His children who have been brought to life through Jesus Christ. He cares about the Apostle Paul. And He cares about Barnabas. And Luke highlights God's care for His people as He gives to Stephen back in Acts chapter 3, the first recorded martyr in the book of Acts, who experiences this high cost of gospel advancement. He gives to Stephen what? That vision of the heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. To say what? I know what's happening right now, Stephen. I know that through your death, the gospel is going to spread. And that's a good thing, but your life is not indifferent to me. Your suffering is not indifferent to me. You matter to me, Stephen. I care. I know what's going on. And I think the same is true here with the Apostle Paul. I don't think God is indifferent to Paul being stoned. The other thing we must be careful that we do not allow to creep into our our thinking is that, well, it was just Paul's body. I mean, come on, right? His soul was saved, right? That's the important part. What happens to his body doesn't matter. Oh, no. No, no, no. No. No, his body mattered. As scripture makes clear, God has made us to be body and soul people. Paul was his body, right? His body was not a throwaway. It mattered. The scars that the apostle Paul would bear in his body mattered to God. It mattered to him. It's important that we see that because if we diminish those things, then then maybe unintentionally we can end up diminishing the supreme cost of gospel advancement. It is absolutely costly. It was costly for the church in Jerusalem. We're seeing it now costly to these missionaries who have been sent out, Paul and Barnabas, and let's not forget, it wasn't just costly to them, but it was costly to every single one of those who came to faith in Christ. It was costly to them. As we read this text, did you not notice the divisions that take place? Do you think these divisions came broke down really nice and simple lines? Do you not think that there was a wife who believed and a husband who did not? Do you not think that there was a teenager who came to faith in Christ and their parents did not? A business partner who came to faith in Christ and the other did not? Do you notice the the type of divisions and the divisiveness that has come as the gospel is declared and some believe and some reject? It's not just for those who go bearing the gospel, but it is also for those who receive the gospel. These disciples are left in these hostile territories. There were disciples who were left in Pisidian Antioch. New converts. A small, tiny, fledgling church. There was another one that was left in Iconium. And another one that was left in Lystra. And one left in Derbe. If you notice in verse 2 of chapter 14, it specifically says that it was not just that these Jews sought to poison the mind of the apostles, but they wanted to poison the mind not just against the apostles, but against the brothers. So it's not just they're against Paul and Barnabas. No, they're against all who have come to faith in Christ. This isn't just something that happened back in the day. While we were in Senegal, West Africa, we could see this happen vividly. Not to say it doesn't happen in the States, but we worked with students and students would come into the church and they would have come to faith in Christ. And while they rejoiced and we rejoiced with them at the blessing, the, the, the grace of God that they had come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, it immediately was of great cost to them. For it ruptured family relationships. I can remember dealing with students who are asking, what do I do? What do I do when my dad says, you will pray when the call to prayer goes out? You will get that mat out and you will bow towards Mecca and you will pray. What do I do? What do I do? What do we do when Ramadan comes? And we're required to fast. What do we do in the celebration of the breaking of that fast? What do we do? I remember going with our team leader out to one village where missionaries had labored for a long time in this village, labored to learn the culture, labored to learn the people, labored to learn the language, and labored and labored and labored. It was of great cost, and there were those who were supporting those missionaries at great cost so they could be there. And all of this cost had resulted in one woman a widow who had come to faith in Christ. And the moment that widow came to faith in Christ, guess what? She was immediately ostracized in that village. Gospel advancement comes at great cost and the book of acts nowhere wants to hide the cost of gospel advancement in fact luke wants us to see it and he keeps pushing it up to say listen this is going to cost and it's a theme that starts all the way back in the gospel of luke when the accomplishment of the gospel jesus said would come at great cost He repeats that over and over again in the Gospel to His disciples. Everything written about Me in the Law and the Prophets must be fulfilled. I am going to be rejected. I am going to suffer. And I am going to die to accomplish the Gospel. And then as He turns to them and says, you are going to be the witnesses of what I accomplish. Well, if they didn't like Me and you go to bear witness about Me, guess what? They're not going to like you. They're not going to. Now, we might say this morning, why is that important? Why would we focus in on that? Well, I'll just give you a couple of reasons it's important that we accept the fact that gospel advancement is costly. And one is so that we do not fight and spend all of our time looking for the most cost-free ways to advance the gospel. Let me put it this way. I'd put it this way to say, if we focus on trying to find cost-free ways or cost-minimal ways for gospel advancement, we are not likely to be very active participants. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying that Paul and Barnabas went out looking for a fight. That's not what Luke records. In fact, if you remember back in chapter 13, we used this phrase, truth, rich, compassionate persuasion. They wanted to make the gospel as clear as they possibly could. No matter the context. In fact, in our passage this morning, we see a different context. And now Paul seeks to put the gospel right down there where people can understand it. He wants to make it clear. Not ashamed of it. Oh no, he puts truth right out there. But wants to make sure if they're going to be offended, they're going to be offended at the truth. If they're going to reject something, they're going to reject the clearest presentation of the gospel he can give them. With as much compassion as he can possibly offer. He wants them to believe. But yet there's this awareness that it's going to come at a great cost. Sometimes we can be in an effort to say we, we wanna we wanna do things to, to to advance the gospel, but but if we're honest and I find this in my own heart and in my own life, I can be hesitant, I want I want to find the way to s- advance the gospel with as little cost as possible. I'm going to wait until that moment comes with that friend, that coworker, that teammate, that classmate until I find the setting where I can share the gospel with them. And there's no way they'll think I'm an idiot. And there's no way it'll affect our relationship. And there's no way it could affect my job. And there's no way it could affect my place on the team or with my friend group. I want to find the lowest cost way possible to get the gospel advanced and be a participant in that. And let me just tell you, what I think Luke is saying is that doesn't exist. And if that is our focus, then we will not be active participants in gospel advancement. Now, if the the cost of gospel advancement is so high, and I think this text is really clear and the end of this missionary journey, this is part of what Luke is presenting and will continue to present throughout all of the missionary journeys of Paul that the cost of gospel advancement is incredibly high. Then we do that cost analysis, right? The little pudgy faced pudgy hand, little kid looking at the outlet, looking at mom. Is it worth it to touch that outlet for the consequences that are coming? You and I, if we're willing to look at the extremely high cost of gospel advancement, then we end up asking ourselves, is it worth it? Right? I mean, that's a fair question. And if we're honest, we ask that question. Is it worth it? Is it worth it for me to risk the relationships within my family to share the gospel with my family members? Is it worth it for me to share the gospel in my workplace knowing what the rest of the people might think about me? Is it worth it in our cultural moment to share the gospel when I know I might be labeled as bigoted and closed-minded and some have some of many different types of phobia that come along with presenting the gospel? Is it worth it that I might be passed up for that promotion? Is gospel advancement so worth it that I would rather see my children and my grandchildren be thrust out by God to a creative access country where their lives are at risk every single day so that possibly He might use them to get the Gospel to people who may never otherwise hear. I won't have them for holidays. I won't get to celebrate their birthdays in person, but it is worth it. Is it worth it? That's the question we ask, and I think our text brings two things to us to help us answer that. The cost of gospel advancement is merited, first of all, as we remember the magnitude of the message. It's worth it as we remember the magnitude of the message. Now some of you are wondering, you're like, man, we, just have, we haven't looked at one really verse closely yet. We're, I mean, we're getting there. Remember the magnitude of the message. Notice here at the beginning of Acts chapter 14, what we are told is that they go into Iconium and they go into the synagogues and it says in verse 1, they spoke in such a way. That such a way is to throw us back to chapter 13 and to remember the way that Paul preached in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And the way Paul preached in Pisidian Antioch was a way to present to those people truth. So let me say this, as we remember the magnitude of the message, one thing that brings magnitude to the message is that it is truth. It is truth. Paul does not show up and preach to these people and Barnabas does not show up and preach to these people a message that they believe is truth for them. He doesn't show up in the synagogue and say to these Jews, well, I I feel personally like under my own convictions, I think Jesus was the Son of God, is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, is the descendant of David who will rule forever. That may not be the truth that fits you best. No, that is not what he says. He says the Messiah has come. The descendant of David has come. Come, it is Jesus and I didn't make that up it has been testified to by Jesus earthly ministry and supremely in His death burial and resurrection He is risen there is an empty tomb and it is the fact that God is testifying to His Son that He is the Messiah it's truth it's truth Paul and Barmanists don't present their personal opinion something that became true when they believed it. No, they attest to that which is historically and absolutely factually true. And what do we see happening here in Iconium as we see happening in other places? The thing that happens when truth is presented. You either accept it or you reject it. It's divisive. Not in a wrong way but in a way that only truth can be. It's divisive. Some believe and some do not. Some accept it and some reject it. And interestingly enough, in these divisions, new communities are formed. There's this whole new community of Jew and Greek that are formed who believe. A group that may not, never have been together before, they group together. Why? Because they accept this truth. And those who reject it, guess what? Another group is formed. In fact, even those who reject it, what do we find? Jew and Gentile working together in rejection of this truth. So the magnitude of the message comes first in that it's truth. The magnitude of the message also comes in that it is a message from God. It is from God. I love the language that Luke uses here. In verse three, as he speaks to the fact that they show up in Iconium and they're speaking, verse three says, So they remained for a long time. That's the response to the persecution that they face. They, instead of fleeing, they remain for a long time. But notice that next phrase, speaking boldly for the Lord. It's almost as if God is using their mouths, right? Jesus has risen from the grave and has now ascended to the father where he is ruling and reigning at his right hand. And he, because he is not physically present, says, I am going to have you as my witnesses. I am going to use your mouth to declare my message. That's what's happening. It's not their message. It's a message that's come from the Lord. One of the magnitude, the thing that brings magnitude to this message of the gospel is that it is a message that comes from God. It is his message. Verse 3 goes on to say that God Himself attested to it by signs and wonders. Now Luke makes very little of these signs and wonders, what they were, and all those things, because they're not the focus. The focus is the message. It's to say that this message has come from me. This message is not a message that could be discovered by human beings. Right? There are a lot of truths that we discover. God made it that way. He made a world, His creation. That creation reflects Him. It's full of truth. And He's created image bearers who have the ability to discover that truth. And it's a wonderful thing. Right? People discover great stuff, and then they force us to learn it in school. Really complicated math and science, and they discover bugs and bacterias and all this kind of stuff. We discover these things, and, and then we study these things, and, and it's great. No one discovered the gospel. No smart guy, no matter how long his beard and how many cigars he smoked or whatever, no one discovered the gospel. This came from God. It is revelation from Him. And it came first and foremost in the Word incarnate Jesus Christ and was taught to his disciples that they might carry that message of the gospel to others. And the very reason that Paul and Barnabas are out declaring this gospel is because none of the people who are receiving it would get it without it being declared to them. It's a message from God. It was from the beginning and it still is now. No one will look at a tree, a rock, or some complicated math equation and go, wow, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. It has to be declared. It is a message from God. So its magnitude comes in that it's truth. Its magnitude comes in that it is a message from God. And its magnitude comes in that it is the only message that saves. Now we get to our story here. In chapter 14, from verses 8 to verse 18... Before we look at that, let me, let me say this, though. It is, it is shown to be the only message that's saved because first it has to be preached to God's chosen people, Israel. Right? This is Paul's pattern. He, he and Barna's pattern. Where do they go? They go to the synagogues. Well, if anybody could kind of squeak in, it would be the descendants of Abraham, right? Those who had the law and the prophets. If anybody was just going to get a pass and, and slide in through the pearly gates, it would be them. Uh-uh. No. They have to hear this message and believe Remember, that sermon that he preached, his his climax to that message was this, that justification through Jesus Christ is available for all of the things by which you could not be justified according to the law of Moses. Jesus saves where the law of Moses could not, perfect as it is. So it had to be preached to the Jews, God's chosen people, so that they might be saved. It had to be preached to God-fearers who were sympathetic to Old Testament revelation in the God of Israel. And now we see, as Paul and Barnabas come into Lystra, the first time Luke records for us them being in what we would call a fully pagan context, guess what? They have to hear the gospel and believe in order to be saved. Now there are ways in which this story that we get as Paul and Barnabas enter Lystra mimic in so many ways the incident with Peter when he goes into the temple and sees a lame beggar at the gate. He sees a lame beggar who Luke here insists can't walk. I don't know if you noticed that, but Luke really wants us to know he can't walk. He says he can't use his feet. He says he's been crippled from birth and he says that he's never walked. He just really wants you to know this guy's not not walking. He listens to Paul speaking. And then, just like Peter in the incident where he heals the lame beggar, Paul fixes his gaze on this man. And then we have this interesting statement that he's seeing he had faith to be healed. Now, do not misunderstand that statement and that Paul is saying or Luke is communicating that inside of this man, there was an adequate amount of faith so that he could be healed, that somehow this miracle takes place as a result of the faith in that man. I think it's this simple. Paul's looking at the man and says, well, if I say to him, get up, and the man's like, uh-uh, my feet don't work. Well, this this, this whole miracle thing doesn't really work, right? This man is there. He's listening. He's leaning in. The faith is not coming from Paul and it's not coming from this man. It is God who's working these miracles and he's looking at this man and something in him says, I know if I command this man, get up, he'll get up. So he says to him, get up. Right? And what does this man do? He... There's somebody out there paying attention. rest of you I'm not sure about, but he gets up. He doesn't just get up, but just like the instance with Peter, he leaps. Now Paul, of course, just to be extra, Luke lets us know he says it in a loud voice. I can't stand people who are loud, by the way. And just like the moment in Jerusalem, there's great confusion. The confusion looks different here, but there's confusion. What just happened? Now here, because these are pagans, meaning they did not have the revelation of the Old Testament, they immediately assume that the gods have come to visit them. And there were reason for them to believe this. There are stories in antiquity, which is a fancy way of saying old stories, where the gods came down to visit people in human form. And one story in particular, they came down to visit people and no one in the village was hospitable to them except for one old poor couple who invited them in to their meagly little home and offered them what little food they had and and were very hospitable to them throughout the day. And when the gods revealed themselves, they blessed this old couple and they annihilated the rest of the village. Now, tell a kid that every night before he goes to bed and two guys show up and they perform a miracle and see what kind of reaction you get. This reaction, I do not think, should be seen as a response of genuine worship driven out of a heart of love and affection for their gods. The gods have showed up. They gave us one sign. We screw this up. We could all be dead. Quick, get the oxen, get the garland. Let's start sacrificing. We better appease these gods or we will die and if we do a good enough job appeasing them, we might get a blessing. Now, there are so many beautiful things about the complications of missions work in this text. Because Paul and Barnabas are speaking probably in Greek, which was not the heart language of these people. And when they really get going and they want to communicate something fast, Whoop, they flip right back over into their heart language, and Paul and Barnabas are going, "What in the world is going on? What are they? What's, what's going?" On? Then, when they catch up with what's going on, what do they do? Well, they, they they visibly show how against, how opposed they are to what's happening. They run into the crowd, ripping their garments, which would have been a significant step. They didn't get cheap T-shirts from Old Navy, and they would just go buy another one. This was a costly demonstration. They wanted to show how appalling this was to them. By no means do these things. We are but men like you. And then what does Paul do? He calls them to the worship of the one true and living God. He says to them, in truth... These things, these idols that you are worshiping are vain. They're worthless. There's no profit there. Don't, don't worship them. Don't sacrifice to them. Don't turn to them, but to the one living God. Now, in the synagogues, And in Jerusalem, when the gospel was preached over and over again, what was the message? Your Messiah came. You missed it. In fact, you rejected Him and were a participant in His death. You need to repent of how you have believed, what you have thought about the Messiah. You need to believe in Him. Can He say that here? No. They don't know who Jesus is. They don't have the Old Testament prophets. They don't have the law. What does He say? There's one living God. And He made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He is your Creator and He is worthy of your worship. He and He alone is worthy of your worship. Now he even says to them there's been a period of time where He's allowed you to walk as it were in ignorance. You weren't God's chosen people. You didn't receive the law and the prophets. And you have walked in ignorance. But here is this great blessing. Listen, He did not leave you without witness, He tells them. He has preached a sermon to you people every time the rains fell. He preached a sermon to you every time the seasons changed. He preached a sermon to you every time you sat down at a good meal and you ate until you were satisfied and your hearts were glad. Isn't that a great image? Every rainstorm is a sermon. Every meal preaches something. Every time we as wicked people are satisfied, it says to us that there is a God who is good. It said to these people who were walking in ignorance, unlike the gods that they had thought had appeared to them in Paul and Barnabas, who if they did not appease them, sacrifice at the right way, in the right moment, they would be annihilated. There is this God who is the Creator of all things. And even while they walked in ignorance, he declared to them season after season, rainstorm after rainstorm, meal after meal, gladness of heart after gladness of heart, that He is a God of His very nature who is of steadfast love, faithfulness, and mercy. And now in a way that they could not fathom before, His mercy was showing up to them and that while they were not looking for Him, He had sent his witnesses to them to declare the message that could save them. That's the true God. That's the living God. Turn from these vain idols that promise you if you sacrifice enough, they'll give you what you are desperate for. No, there is one true and living God and he testifies to his steadfast love day after day as he makes the rain to fall on the righteous and the wicked. For He has supremely shown His steadfast love and faithfulness and that He sent His Son and placed upon Him the consequences for your rebellion and raised Him again that in Him you might have life and it eternal. Now I'm assuming Paul said all that because if you notice, he gets kind of cut off here. Luke doesn't record all of those things, but I think that's where this message is leading. These people needed to hear the gospel. Jews had to hear it. God fears had to hear it. Pagans had to hear it. There is no way to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ apart from this message. That is part of the magnitude. It's truth. It's the message from God. And there is salvation through no other message. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. The other part of the magnitude is, is that it is the hope of those who believe it is the hope for those who believe what happens well we see in our text that paul and barnabas they they go through these areas they endure this hardship all the way to the point where paul is stoned and and yet they they get all the way to derby Now, if you you look at the map, you'll notice that it would have been way easier once they got to Derby to pass through Tarsus, which is Paul's hometown. He could have gone to his favorite restaurant and, and, and maybe healed up a little bit, saw some friends, enjoyed that, but they don't do that. What do they do? They turn right back around, they go right back through all of those places where they have been persecuted. For what purpose? So Paul could walk through, going "Nanny, nanny, boo, boo, you didn't kill me." Maybe I could see Paul doing that, honestly. But I don't think that's that, that's not what Luke says. Luke says they go back through to strengthen the disciples to appoint elders. And what is it that they're doing to strengthen them? What do they point them to? Verse twenty-two says that they strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in what? In the faith encouraging them to continue in the faith. And then it even says in verse 23 that with fasting and prayer, they, they pick these elders and then they commit them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The gospel isn't just the message that saves us one time, then we move on. The gospel is the message where we find hope for our everyday lives. Having believed, we continue believing The message of the gospel is not just that Jesus gets you in the door. The message of the gospel is that by His ultimate sacrifice, we have assurance that one day we will be completely saved, glorified. Why? Because I held on? Because you held on? Because I was good enough? No, because Christ's sacrifice was great enough. Because He did everything necessary. Not just that I would be saved and adopted into his family, but that I would get all the way to glory where I would stand before a holy God without spot and with great joy. So Paul and Barnabas go back through and they look at these, these fledgling little churches. Oh my goodness, if we could see these churches, we'd be horrified. Fledgling groups of believers. So immature in their faith. I can't even imagine what they used to qualify certain guys as elders. There's no telling. And what does He say to them? What does He he encourage them in? Listen, God sought you out by His grace and He saved you. And the work that Jesus started, He's going to finish. Don't get confused and look inward. Don't get confused and look anywhere else. You look to Jesus. What He started, He will finish. Paul wasn't just saying that for their sake. Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas are saying that for their sake too. What was their confidence that these little churches were going to make it? What was their confidence these elders were not just going to botch everything? Well, we've been reminded by Luke over and over again as we've walked through this that Paul and Barnabas weren't going to these different places picking the elites, right? This wasn't like picking the kickball team on the playground. I don't know if you're still allowed to play kickball. There's a lot of games you can't play anymore. Right? They weren't out there going, you know, I'll take that guy. He looks really smart. That that woman over there, she seems to really have it together. I'll I'll pick that one. I'll pick this guy. No, it didn't work that way. Who did they get? They got whoever God chose to save. Right? All who were appointed to eternal life. And in case you're wondering what that group looked like, Paul was very clear about it when he wrote to the Corinthians. And he says, <clears throat> um, gang, there's not many of us who are wise or of high standing. Yeah, this, this wasn't the, the knockout team. This wasn't the super strategized, here are the influencers in this area. We really want a church to work. We really want to impact this area. These are the ones we've got to have. No, these were the ones that God and His sovereignty chose to save, which so many times are those we would look at and go, Oh, throw away. Why? So that when those churches made it and the gospel advanced, no one but God would get the glory. So Paul goes back through and he looks at them and he says, I commit you to the Lord. I commit you to the Lord because He saved you, He called you, and He's going to make you to live into that calling. That's my confidence and that's my encouragement for you. That's the magnitude of the message. It's not just what gets us in the door. It's our hope. It's your hope and mine every single day. It's what we come here to this church to preach to each other is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the cost is high for Gospel advancement, but one of the reasons that it is worth it is because of the magnitude of the message. The magnitude of that message comes in the fact that it's truth, it's from God, it's the only message that saves, and it is the hope for all who are saved. And then lastly, the cost of the advancement of the Gospel is worth it because of the weightiness of God because of the weightiness of God. You see, this plot line develops that we laid out in the beginning. Paul and Barnabas being chased, more so Paul than anyone else, right? Because the storyline is built that way. No one ever said of Barnabas, "He." we're going to see how much he has to suffer for my name's sake. It was Paul. And then they chase him down and they finally get him in verse 19 and they stone him and they drag him out of the city so that thinking he's dead... Verse 20 says the disciples gather around him and then we're like, Luke, you could have given us a little more here, buddy. Because next thing you know, Paul just gets up. And what does he do? He walks right back into Lystra. He recovers and then the next day he heads on to Derby. And what do they do in Derby? Lick their wounds. Hunker down what do they do? Preach the Gospel. They continue to preach the Gospel. Why? Because Paul was some super Christian. His body didn't really hurt. Absolutely not. He would bear in his body the scars of that moment. Later on, I think we see a very intimate moment with Paul when God has to assure him when he faces opposition not to fear for he has many in that city who will come to faith. This didn't just mess with Paul's body. It messed messed with his psyche. It messed with his emotions. It messed with him mentally. But there's the magnitude of the message and then there's the weightiness of God. Because having traveled all the way back through, they pass by by Cyprus. That's, That's the difference on their way back. They don't go to Cyprus. But they arrive back in Antioch in Syria, which is the church that they were at in the beginning. And Luke is very clear with his language here in verse 26. And from there they sailed to Antioch and they to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. He wants to remind us that as we look at this and we look at the cost that Paul and Barnabas were willing to pay, as we look at the people who've come to faith in Christ and the churches that had been established, none of this happens apart from God. It was not Paul's idea to go on a mission trip. It was not Barnabas' idea. As many of these, this list, remember back in the beginning of chapter 13, this list of all these prophets and teachers there in the church in Antioch? It wasn't their idea. We can even take it back a step from that. The church in Antioch wasn't somebody's idea. Preaching the Gospel to Gentiles was not someone's great idea. God had to make that happen. Getting his people out of Jerusalem was not their idea. God told them to do that. And then he had to kind of encourage them along in that process. The church was not their idea. Beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus has risen. What are they ready for? The fullness of the kingdom is now the time. Let's do it. I mean, you can't blame them, right? That's what they're ready for. None of this is man's idea. All the way down to this first missionary journey, none of this we look at and go, man, Paul was a superstellar Christian. We should all try to be like Paul. We all should ask ourselves, what would Paul do in every situation? We should try and make every missionary like Paul or like Barnabas or like the church in Antioch. We should all try to be like the church in Antioch in Syria. We should all be like them. No, no. They returned to the church where God had commissioned them. It was God's work. This whole thing was His plan, it was not theirs. So when they get back and they gather the church there in Antioch, they talk about this fulfillment of the work. So remember at the beginning, the Holy Spirit sent them out to a specific work. Luke is saying that work that the Spirit sent them out for is complete. It's done. It's finished. This first time, it's finished. This is what he sent them out to do. They're coming back because it's done. Verse 27, and when they had arrived and gathered the church together, listen to this language, they declared all God had done with them them. It almost makes Paul and Barnabas sound like a spatula in the drawer. They don't say, man, look at all we did for God. Oh, man, we we crushed it, guys. Let me tell you. Look at all that we did for God. That's not what they say. What do they say? What God did with them. Because this wasn't about them. It was about God. It's about what He did. So much so that they say next, the next phrase is how He, God, opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. We weren't seeking to do this. The Gentiles weren't seeking God. God opened the door and God sent us. That's how this whole thing happened. It was all God from the beginning. It was all God all the way through. And so everything that was accomplished was accomplished to the praise of His glorious grace. No one here is a cut above anyone else. No one is getting honor badges for their uh, leveling up. No, this is all to the glory of God. It is the weightiness of our God and our need to stand in awe of the weightiness of our God. Because it is all to His glory. It is all to His glory. If that church in Antioch thought they had it so together that they could praise God enough, as wonderful a trophy of God's grace as it was that Jew and Gentile were finally coming together, they were worshiping together, they had sound teaching, they were committed to the Word of God. They were committed to giving. All of those things are great. But if they had thought they could hunker down there and the praise of that church would equal the worth and weightiness of God, they would have missed it. They would have missed it. Because the reality was is that their God was weightier still. Greater still. Remind reminds us of that phrase that John Piper wrote in the book, Let the Nations Be Glad, that missions is not ultimate, worship is. We go out in the cause of missions, and we go out in the advancement of the gospel as participants in this, because of the magnitude of the message and because of the weightiness of our God. There's this beautiful imagery throughout Scripture of when the glory of God shows up. I use the word weightiness on purpose because I just want you to think a little differently about it. Because throughout Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, when the glory of God shows up, everything quakes. When you think about something that's heavy, you think about something that's that's got magnitude to it, People move out of its way, or or, or, or things things move for it. A, a huge ship cutting through the water, it's weightier, and so it cuts through. You think about a a, a rock, and, a, and and then and then a huge anvil comes crashing down on it. And I mean, there there are YouTube videos of just random things getting put into uh, presses, right? And you watch them crushed. The ladies are like, I don't know what you're talking about. All the guys are like, Yeah, I subscribe to that. And throughout the Old Testament, what do we see? The psalmist writes about the glory of God and what happens when the glory of God comes. The seas boil. And the waves churn. When the glory of God comes down, it is weightier. It is weightier than the mountains that shake before it. The very foundations of the earth Spoken by that God are nowhere close to His weightiness, His beauty, His glory, His grandeur. It is deeper, realer, richer, purer, so that all of the earth shakes the glory of God. And it's for the sake of His glory. To the praise of His glorious grace that He has ordained at this moment in time in this church age where the King has come and established His kingdom, but we are yet waiting His return in the fullness of it. That He says this Gospel advancement is going to come at a high cost. And I make no bones about that. Here's the thing. It is worth it because of the magnitude of the message and the weightiness of my glory. Because I am worthy of the worship of every one of my image bearers. I am worthy that they would see my steadfast love, my mercy, my grace, my righteousness, and my kindness as they meet together the cross of Christ where I was pleased to crush my Son. That they might have forgiveness and be justified. The high cost of gospel advancement is merited by the magnitude of the message and the weightiness of God. The more we see that, the more we accept that, the more we think we become active participants in it. We won't be shocked when the cost is high because we will remember that magnitude of the message and most of all, we'll remember the weightiness of God. Let me just say this, and I know I'm dragging this out a bit. I am convinced of this, brothers and sisters. Satan knows he cannot snatch those of us who are believers out of the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows that's not a possibility. But I think he would delight in nothing more than shifting our attention away from the wonder and the beauty and the weightiness of our God to anything else. I think that he would even in our culture, in our particular moment, rather shift us to, as it were, uh, fancy strategies, dare I even say uh, celebrity pastors, in whom we would look and we would think, man, aren't they something, aren't they amazing, they're doing it right, let's model them, let's focus on them. And maybe even we, we adopt their strategies and we go back and we try and do everything just like them, and then when it falls apart, we're bewildered. The last thing He wants is for us to be fixed on the beauty and the wonder and the greatness of our God. The last thing He wants is for us to see how immensely worthy He is because then, no matter what He calls us to, we will not find ourselves asking, is it worth it? We will be driven by the reality that He is worthy. He's worthy. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You that You have been so gracious to reveal Yourself to us in the creation that we see around us which screams of Your absolute worth. But more clearly than that, we thank You for the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection and the ascension which declare to us more vividly than we could have ever seen or understood in creation Your glory. I pray, Father, that You would take this truth and You would help us now through the work of Your Spirit, not just to to accept it into our minds, but that which is from You, it 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 would be infused into our bones, into our lives, that it would affect how we walk. So that as we go out this week and there there's an opportunity to share of Christ and there is cost that comes with it, we wouldn't be shocked. We wouldn't shy away. We'd remember the magnitude of the message. We would remember the weightiness of our God. And I pray, Father, for our church, even now as we walk through difficult times, that while the difficulties are real and at times they are huge in our eyes, that they will not take us away. They will not block us your glory from us. And now, Lord, we rejoice at the opportunity to respond by standing and singing, something we do often. But we ask, Lord, that as we stand and sing, we would sing with hearts that are overflowing. Hearts that are overflowing as you, through faith, grant us eyes to see just a little bit better your glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.